You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. And on today's episode, we're going to talk to Dr. Jonathan Pennington about the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be just trying to dig in to see what maybe is this kind of fresh take on the Sermon on the Mount that Dr. Pennington has provided in his book, The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. Dr. Pennington is a first-rate scholar. He's also a churchman. So he knows that the heart of these issues are not just how we rightly understand them in the Word of God, but also how they translate into our lives and have a meaningful impact. We had a lot of fun with Dr. Pennington. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Today, we are joined by Dr. Jonathan Pennington of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Pennington is Associate Professor of New Testament Interpretation at Southern Seminary, and he's the Director of the Doctoral Research Studies there. Dr. Pennington is the author of numerous books, including How to Read the Gospels Wisely and the Sermon on the Mount in Human Flourishing. On top of writing and teaching, Dr. Pennington is a member and serves at Sojourn Community Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Dr. Pennington, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Delight to be talking with you guys. Absolutely. We've been able to uh, host Dr. Pennington two, three, three years in a three row, JT? Three years in a row. This would be, be the third year, yeah. I mm-hmm. guess. For the training program and yep. always comes in and blows the minds of our students and encourages their hearts. So we're just so grateful that you've taken some more time to be with us today. My pleasure, truly. Well, so you've just published a book on the Sermon on the Mount, and um, I guess this would be a great place to start. I feel like the Sermon on the Mount has got to be one of the most familiar passages in the New Testament. Why a fresh look at this, like, heavily explored passage? Yeah, that's great. Um, Yeah, well, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, you're right, has been throughout the Church's history probably the most studied and preached and probably single most influential text, just because there's so much riches in there and and uh, the influence of Matthew as a gospel and then the teachings of the sermon are so familiar to us. Um, and at the same time, you know, the, the work of the Church in every generation is to read the Bible anew and afresh, not in the sense of coming up with new things, uh, making up things that are in it, but instead rereading the Bible as the living Word of God speaking into this generation uh, is probably the main reason why we always need to be going back to the sermon and, and listening to it. And at the same time, also, you know, uh, there are new insights that scholarship and pastors sometimes have about the Bible, usually not brand new, but things that a lot of times have been understood by previous Christians and then for various reasons get lost and kind of rediscovered. And so I think for me, for both those reasons, the the need to hear the sermon in our generation and some insights that have been lost from previous generations are what I'm trying to do in this book. Right. And it seems like one of the, you know, when if I crack the spine on this book and I've read it now and uh, it, it is, it's really a very helpful where I found it to be incredibly helpful and fruitful in reading it. But if you just turn a few pages in and you get to your translation, any reader of the sermon who is used to hearing the sermon talked about, particularly the Beatitudes, is going to be immediately confronted with a word that seems different to them than the translation they would normally find. And that is that you render the word blessing or the word that is used blessing uh, in most English translations as flourishing. And I'd love to just spend maybe just a moment talking about that because I think that's the first thing that you notice is going, 
okay, what is this flourishing he's talking about that seems to be not only the title of the book, but the way that he's talking about the sermon generally? Yeah, thanks. And I noticed you say, just spend a moment on it, because you know that I could easily spend an hour talking <laughs> about that. <laughs> and, there, and there's an, I know how you are. Well, Kyle and spent I, about 30 minutes entire... asking the question, so. <laughs> well, I, I was going to note that as well, so that's fine. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, there's a whole chapter in the book uh, just dedicated to that one word, which sounds a little scary and dangerous, but it, it is such a crucial idea. It's more than just the word, the Greek word, makarios, um, that does get translated into blessed, probably in most English translations. Um, sometimes, rarely, you will see English translations say happy, um, which doesn't work, and that's why I've not chosen to go with that, because happy is such a a thin word in English now just kind of means a temporary emotional state. But a big part of the argument of the book has been seen as seen in the title and in that chapter and in the translation of flourishing is that we haven't maybe quite gotten at the idea that Jesus is teaching there by translating as blessed. I think we've kind of missed something. And in short, what I think we've missed is that when we translate it as the Beatitudes as blessed, um, what that does for us as English hearers today is that we primarily think of God actively blessing somebody. Probably we think of it for doing something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. And it is true that God does bless us um, both uh, primarily just out of his grace and also, um, you know, in response to the faithfulness that he gives us. That That's not quite what the Beatitudes are about. The Beatitudes are what I like to describe as invitations to the good life, the flourishing life, the true life, uh, invitations from Jesus to reconsider uh, how we think the world works and what is beautiful and good in the world and how to be in the world in a way that corresponds to God's coming kingdom. And what Jesus, it is an invitation because it's quite unexpected. What he says is true flourishing uh, involves uh, giving up of ourselves, It involves suffering. It involves uh, orienting our lives towards values that are God's kingdom that aren't necessarily humanity's values and maybe not natural values to us. And so um, these places, these ways of living that Jesus commends in the sermon and the Beatitudes are blessings, but we can't read them as if they are saying, do this and then God will bless you. Instead, it's an invitation. It's saying it's an invitation to reconsider um, what is true in the world according to God's perspective, and to orient our lives to that. So I don't love the translation flourishing. It's not perfect. I spent literally several years pondering how to translate that word. Um, But I think it does a little better than blessed uh, because of the potential confusion of of that translation. So I hope that makes sense. I'm happy to kind of dialogue more if you want to ask questions about that. Well, it's similar to the the Ten Commandments. You know, they're they're an invitation to reality. They're not just um, uh, surface statements that are commands. There's way more to them than that. I, I, I'm wondering yeah. if you can help our listeners with just the positioning of the Sermon on the Mount within the Gospel of Matthew. Like, what is one of the hermeneutical principles we've been trying to talk about more in the in the Bible classes we're going through the whole book is what is what changes about the Gospel of Matthew if these three chapters were to drop out? Like, what are they contributing to what the Gospel is accomplishing? And I'm just curious if you could kind of open that up for us a little bit. Yeah, wow. That's a great question. Nobody's 
quite asked it that way before. That Stumper. Nice that's what Stumper spot. right that's out of the what, game. Yeah. That's what Jen is always in, <laughs> right. uh, Dr. Pennington. We just live in that. JT and I just live in that moment right. of going, we've never been asked that question before. Yeah, yeah stop asking me those Sorry. questions. Sorry. <laughs> well, the next thing I was going to say is it's a ridiculous question. That was the next thing I was going to say. So we'll, uh, we'll just skip that. That sounds more accurate. And that's Dr. why we've had him yeah. for three hey, times in Dr. a row. Dr. Pennington, you've got to join the team. You're the perfect foil for the personalities in this room. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, no, it is a really good question. You know, the the Gospel of Matthew is such a beautiful, elaborate piece of literature and sermon to us that is obviously a classic that stood the test of time for, you know, almost 2,000 years now. And the Sermon on the Mount is probably the, you know, the largest ruby in the beautiful setting of, of Matthew, for sure. Um, it, but it's not the only gemstone in Matthew. He actually gives us five uh, beautiful gemstones in his gospel, and the Sermon on the Mount's the first of them, and like I said, I think it's probably the most um, beautiful and elaborately designed um, but Matthew really is um, geared towards showing Jesus as a teacher, um, even a philosopher. Maybe we'll come back to that issue. Um, but one who is giving wisdom, true wisdom for how to live in the world according to God's coming kingdom. And he does that through the whole gospel, but he gives us five big teaching blocks that are uh, places where you can kind of go. I like to describe them as a one-stop shop on a certain topic or an issue. And those are, you know, several places throughout Matthew. We call them the five major discourses. But the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7, is the first of those. And I think is intentionally put first because it's such a huge, beautiful, topsy-turvy, uh, unexpected vision of what Jesus' ministry is about. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. And we need to reorient. We need to repent and reorient our lives towards a different way of being in the world by faith in the in the king who's proclaiming it. So um, I, I've already forgotten your question, but there's my answer well, to it. Well, Whatever, maybe that, hopefully that answers your question. Well, then it was a great, you, was you a might great have answer said something that. else in there. But, oh, uh, related um, to that, Dr. Pennington, I have, I have a question for you. So you say this on, on page 66 of your book. You say uh, that this is... Uh, this idea of human flourishing is a meta theme throughout the Bible. In other words, it's one of the main themes in Scripture. So in other words, Matthew isn't the first person to explore this idea of what it means to flourish as a human being. Can you tease that out for us a little bit to where, as good Bible readers, we don't come to Matthew chapter 5 and see this idea of flourishing and realize this is a new category, but rather this is part of God's redeeming work throughout the story of the Bible. Yeah, and, and that was something that um, developed for me over the years of studying uh, the sermon, really coming to see, wow, this isn't, I mean, this would be great if it's just in Matthew, that would be enough, right? But sure. but it really does tie into, it makes a lot more sense when you understand that the whole Bible is about God restoring humanity to its full humanness, as well as the world to a time and a place and an existence of shalom, or flourishing. That's really what shalom idea means, more than peace in the kind of maybe sense that we use that in English, it really means something larger than just cessation of conflict or inner tranquility. It means, shalom means true life and flourishing mm -hmm. and abundance and mm -hmm. fertility and, you know, all these sort of images, greenness. And so, you know, once you start thinking that way, you realize, wow, that of course is what the whole Bible's about. You see it from Genesis. That's the situation that it starts. Humanity exists in this kind of flourishing state. Um, we fall and rebel and 
lose that sense of flourishing through death and labor and, and difficulties and enmity and strife. And then God sets in motion his redemptive plan right from Genesis, as you guys well know, beginning the long process of calling a people to himself and promising them life and leading them. And the image of a promised land is a foretaste of what's to come. And the Davidic kingdom is a an imperfect foretaste of a time of peace, but it all is imperfect. It's all flawed. Even David is deeply flawed. And it goes all the way through Abraham and Moses and, and David and all the way through and so by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, there's the story of Israel is long and, and deep and rich, um, but it's also longing. It's, it's imperfect. It's a, there's a longing for God to come and restore the fullness of um, his peace on the earth and the redemption of humanity and creation itself. And, and the prophets talk that way. And so when Jesus shows up and, start, and immediately says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and here are macroisms, here are beatitudes, here are ways of human flourishing that I'm inviting you into. Wow, it all makes sense. I mean, I mean, this is, this is how, what God has been talking about the whole time. This is not some brand new idea. And then you look forward to how Paul teaches and then how the book of Revelation ends. It's all about human flourishing. It's all about God restoring us to fullness of humanity. You can think of Romans chapter 8 would be one place in Paul where you could see it, that creation is longing for its redemption. Humanity is longing for its redemption. And so I think the sermon is just like a really crucial, beautiful piece of that larger puzzle or a, a stage in that larger journey that I think makes sense of the whole message of the Bible. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture. But what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. That's, that's uh, I think, beautifully put. Related to that, uh, so if, if we see flourishing and what it means to be a human being is a picture of, or one of the primary themes that the Bible is continually exploring and giving us a vision for, you also say this in the book, that the kingdom of God is one of these other themes also. And this is, a, I know, a, a topic that you've spent a lot of time thinking and writing about. Could you maybe give our listeners, because uh, the kingdom of God language or kingdom of heaven language can be just thrown out like Jesus has established God's kingdom and we actually have no idea what we're mm -hmm. trying to say when we yeah. use those terms it can yeah. be one of those throwaways but the Bible is not using this category as a throwaway it's 
perhaps the central theme of Scripture. So can you help us understand a little bit? And I look at uh, at Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 3, talking about they're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Can you help us explore that topic a little bit? Yeah, when we think kingdom, I think, I love Will and Kate. I'm glad they're having twins. That's, right. <laughs> that's, that's about the extent of our, our sort of exposure to kingdom. You know, we don't have much sense of it biblically. But, um, yeah, I mean, God's kingdom as I'm sure many of your listeners probably know, and maybe some don't, is, again, it's a thread you pull on and you realize, oh, the whole Bible kind of is tied together with this, Mm -hmm. even though it is kind of foreign to us. And it's the idea that God rules beautifully and justly and wisely um, as a king over the world and that there's a place and a time where he will rule perfectly and fully. I mean, I think of the Lord's Prayer in the middle of the sermon um, that at the heart of the Christian approach to the world is, God, let your name and your reign and your rule, um, those things that are true now in, in heaven, make them fully true on earth. That's really what the whole Bible is oriented towards, the longing for God to come and restore his reign. So what does that mean? Well, that means, again, a time and place that is exactly what we long for, that when there are relationships all relationships are whole and beautiful and life-giving. It's a time and place where there is true justice. There is no longer sex trafficking and and brokenness of relationships and brokenness in bodies and perversions of everything good. Um, that our world, you know, is a beautiful place that is just marked by deep perversions at every turn in one way or another. And the idea of the in the Bible of God's kingdom is a a time and place where all of that is set to right. It's not a, it's not an idea of sort of escaping from horrible earth or escaping from horrible physical bodies. It's just the opposite. It's a vision when the very our bodies and the earth themselves are fully restored to beauty and glory and goodness, and our relationships with each other and with God and with the created world are in perfect. Um, harmony. It sounds like a Coke commercial now or something. Sorry, but it's the, re- the reason Coca-Cola sings about that and the reason the 1960s talked that way is because there's a deep human longing in all right. of us for that. Yeah. And that's exactly what the Bible talks about. Uh, if I might say one more thing about that, when, when, Jesus, when you look at Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, one of the main things he does is he not only teaches, but he heals people. And, you know, all those people died again. As I seem to remember, but he heals them out of genuine compassion and love. But the point of Jesus' ministry, his ministry of healings, is not just to prove that he was God or something, which, you know, it's part of that, but it's actually to show what the time and place of God's ultimate reign will be like. Mm. The idea that relationships and bodies and society are healed is what the kingdom of God is really looking for. And, and I think that's a big part of the reason why Jesus heals so many people. It's, it's like a foretaste of the healing that is to come. It's the slice of turkey that your mother, when you go into the kitchen on Thanksgiving, two hours before dinner, she says, come here, and she slices a little piece of that perfect turkey and says, taste this, right? <laughs> and this is what's coming, and that's what, that's what Jesus is. <laughs> that's what I'm all about. That's what Jesus' <laughs> healing ministry is, is, is a picture of. 
What a great seasonal analogy, yeah, too. Did you have that like so in your pocket? Well or yeah. like, wow, you just oh, yeah, talk yeah. about pumpkin pie next. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I have, a right. I have a question for you, Dr. Pennington, and I, and I fear that it's going to open up too many doors, but I think you'll understand where I'm coming from. In, in, in your book and, and through the Sermon on the Mount, you talk about how the, one of the, the big themes of uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Human Flourishing is uh, a greater righteousness, that, that, that Jesus is commending a greater righteousness. And I have found that this is a stumbling block when reading or teaching with somebody through the Sermon on the Mount, is that if you have kind of had a small snapshot of the gospel and the concept of righteousness, then you can be a little bit offended. You're, you don't, maybe not offended, you don't know how to graft in the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount with the good, like the gospel presentation that you've heard. Like, you don't know how they sync up. You're like... Jesus sounds kind of like a legalist. Right. So so why is the Sermon on the Mount more than just a list of do's and don'ts? Or is it just that? Yeah. Um, you're right that that really opens up a lot of other avenues of important discussion. So I'll try to be super succinct. Maybe we should have another conversation separately on that issue. That would be actually be a really good podcast as well to just talk about righteousness in the Bible. Yeah, I'm just going to start calling you every time I have a problem with the Gospels. I've got your number now, so I'm just going to be like... I have actually done that. You remember that? I was like, hey, this question, I can call the best Gospel writer in the world, scholar in the world. I mean, I... Yeah, but I mean, believe me, as I was writing this book, that was a huge question for me, too. And as I got deeper into the sermon as an evangelical Protestant, and after all, we're celebrating that, you know, minor detail of 500 years in, you know, this month uh, in October of, of the Protestant Reformation. So obviously as a Protestant, you know, I'm thinking a lot about this issue of how does the gospel relate to the sermon. And I think real succinctly, I would say that um, that what the gospels give us very clearly is that Jesus' atoning sacrificial death is central and foundational to the Christian message, and Paul's not, you know, wrong in preaching that. That's what the Gospels themselves focus on. He dies on behalf of his people um, and rises from the dead to rescue a people for himself. And so that's foundational, right? right? But that's not the entirety of the Gospel. Unfortunately, sometimes that's how we talk. The entirety of the Gospel is that on the basis of that, God is inviting us into true humanity, to full humanity, to redemption. Redemption is not just the past forgiveness of sins, it's the present and future redemption of our bodies and hearts and minds. And so this, I think it fits perfectly if you understand the gospel in this full biblical sense of truly being redeemed and transformed by grace, not just being forgiven for past sins. Hmm. And and once you do that, you realize, oh, the greater righteousness is exactly what we long for. Not just God giving us forgiveness, imputed righteousness, but actually being transformed to be different people. I mean, don't you get tired of yourself? I mean, don't you get tired of the constant struggle with sin and brokenness and failure in your own life and maybe especially in your spouse's life, <laughs> but no, more, more seriously, in, in your own life. I mean, don't you just get tired of that struggle, right? Mm-hmm. And that tiredness you feel is because we need and long for actually being transformed to be different people. And that's what the greater righteousness is that Matthew's talking about, that you are being changed into someone different by grace, by faith, by the power of the Spirit. And that's an invitation. That's not legalism. That's exactly, that's the beauty that you and I long for. And I think that's, you know, essential for the gospel as well. 
So you that sound like you think that the gospel is not just justification, but also sanctification. For sure. Do you I not? I love it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think as pro- I think that's in Protestantism. I think that's in our evangelical tradition. But I think a lot of times we have gotten a reduced, kind of reductionistic, I should say, version of the gospel to only mean the past forgiveness of sins. And then when you do that, it's hard to make sense of a lot of the Bible, I think. Yeah. Yeah. If you understand the gospel as the whole message of God's redemption, right. Right. that includes mm-hmm. the past, the present, and the future, I think. We talked about this some yeah. in our conversations, um, JT and Kyle and I have, about how um, a lot of times people will, in a well-meaning way, want to say after you've taught a passage about turning from sin, you know, and um, growing in righteousness, and they'll say, but, you know, you always got to bring it back to the gospel, right? And I'm I'm always thrown off by that, because, like, where was the gospel not in that? The mm-hmm. the fact that we, we once were this, and now we're, uh, uh, you know, growing in grace, I mean, that is the gospel. So I love to hear um, the deeper righteousness that Jesus talks about described in those terms. Yeah, I think, or, I think one of the... I mean, I was going to say one of the things that we talk about a little bit in our training program, Dr. Pennington, is that while you're absolutely right to point out the uh, the saving and atoning work of Christ is the central message of the gospel, forgiveness of sins, uh, while at the same time you have to account for Jesus and his disciples going around Galilee preaching the good news mm-hmm. of the kingdom of God before that happened. Right. Right, just chronologically, they're they're preaching some kind of a good news, a euangelion or a gospel message before his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and this has to be the the coming reign of God in which all things will be made new, which is coming in the person of right. Jesus Christ. Right. Yeah. What we often reductionistically call the gospel as the forgiveness of sin—that's actually the absolutely only doorway into the gospel, so it's exactly. part of it, yep. in the same way that it's, you know, a doorway is, is part of the house, but the house is actually the reign of God, mm-hmm. and, right. and that the gospel is defined in both Isaiah and in the gospels, and I would suggest to you, and Paul as well, as the rule of God, the reign of God, the kingdom of God, the good and just and beautiful time and place when God rules perfectly and fully. The only way to get into that is through Jesus' sacrificial and atoning death and resurrection, but... That's not, you can't define the gospel as only that, or I, I really just don't think it makes sense of how the New Testament talks or the Old Testament for that matter. Dr. Pennington, this is so helpful. And I, there's, I feel like every time we, uh, we you know, have somebody on the line, either, you know, Dr. Allison a few weeks ago, now it's you. We never have enough time to get through all the issues we want to. But if, if somebody's listening to this and they go, I want to dig deeper into the Sermon on the Mount, and they say, I'm going to read Sermon on the Mount and the Human Flourishing. So let's table that. They've, they've already bought your book on Amazon. They pulled Obviously, off the side of the road right. and they, they bought it. <laughs> and they're going to bring it when you come in to get it signed and get a selfie with you. If, that, if they have already done that and they want to dig deeper in the Sermon on the Mount, while the book is in the mail, what next steps would you encourage them to do? What would you say, this is one of the ways that I would encourage you to reflect on the Sermon on the Mount? Memorize it. Boom. I love that answer. I, I'm not joking. I mean, it has been, um, my last couple of years of study, one of the things that struck me uh, surprisingly from my, I didn't expect running across this, I mean, is as I've studied more um, rabbinic and Hellenistic pedagogy, there's a mouthful, but as I've studied what education was like in the first century, time of Jesus, and through most of human history, actually, it was all based on memorization of 
key texts. Most people did not read um, the Sermon on the Mount. Most people would have heard it and memorized it and experienced it orally um, from people performing it, in effect. And when you memorize it, it is a completely transformative experience. Mm. Um, I take long walks, and I don't have the whole Sermon on the Mount memorized yet to my chagrin and failure, but the parts that I do have memorized, I meditate on, and I even after finishing the book, I saw so many things by just reciting it to myself as I walked, connections that I had never seen before. I'm like, ah, I missed that too. And it's just because there's something deeply profound about having an internalization of the word. So there's tons of great books you can read on the sermon. I mean, tons, there are. But the first thing we should all do is memorize it if you really want to have it be inside of you. Dr. Pennington, that is rich. Thank you. I just want to thank you so much for being a gift to this church. You have uh, sown seeds faithfully into the life of our community here, and we are so grateful for you for all of those times and for today. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Pennington. Hey, my pleasure. You guys are beautiful people, and I'm honored to, to chat with you today. Okay, so Dr. Pennington, I mean, just drop in truth bombs and gold on top of us. I just feel weighted down. JT, what are you thinking? Yeah, the, the thing I love about Dr. Pennington, he's, he's an unbelievable scholar, but at the same time, he's a churchman. I think mm-hmm. one of the things he would have us, uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about as being a churchman or as a pastor, somebody who's deeply embedded in the life of the local church and caring for God's people, is prayer and how prayer kind of orients us to God and orients mm-hmm. us to other people. And specifically, of course, here in the Sermon on the Mount, we have this prayer that is probably the most well-known recited prayer uh, in the life of the church, and rightfully so, is because this is how Jesus is instructing his disciples to pray. And so uh, what's fun is I have a a two-and-a-half-year-old at home, little Thomas and Bailey, uh, 15 weeks old now. And every night we say the Lord's Prayer together, and Thomas can get the last word of every line, <laughs> kind of mumbling it <laughs> as he's trying to get it. But, but even as Pennington was talking about pedagogy and trying to embed these narratives and values into our thought life, I'm mm-hmm. hoping that this will be kind of some of the kindling for Thomas, that as he learns to hopefully pray to the to the Lord Jesus Christ, that this is how he'll be oriented to God. And I loved how Dr. Pennington talked about uh, related to being a human being and a human who flourishes our, is our primary orientation is we're trying to orient ourselves to the kingdom of God. And this is exactly what the Lord's Prayer is intending to do. It's saying your primary disposition as a human being and as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ should be always your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I just I just love kind of the depth of that. And if I could maybe, maybe I know Dr. Pennington said, memorize the whole Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's do that. But if that feels like a big uh, chunk to bite off, maybe start with the Lord's Prayer and just start orienting yourself to God's kingdom narrative in the scriptures by memorizing the Lord's Prayer and saying it, reciting it regularly, asking that Jesus would bring his kingdom back to this world. That's good. I love it. That, you know, anytime we talk about the Sermon on the Mount um, in classes, my joke is you already have a big chunk of it memorized, probably because you already know the Lord's Prayer. Most of us do. And yet we've many times recited it our whole lives and not been able to put it within the referen- the greater reference point of mm-hmm. what, what's being said about the kingdom. And then you start to see it in the parables mm-hmm. and you see it in uh, John the Baptist. Met- I mean, it's everywhere. And um, in some ways, knowing our over-familiarity with the Lord's Prayer can mean that we haven't perhaps ever considered it in that context, and it just begins to expand Mm -hmm. on us when we Mm -hmm. do. And so I I love to ask people, hey, look at the stuff around it, because I think you're going to really find that the Lord's Prayer is doing a lot of things. Yeah. I was struck by, um, he's talking about 
when we think about the gospel, when we think about justification coming in through the doorpost, the door of forgiveness of sins, mm-hmm. and and even that imagery of a house and what he was calling us to and what the Sermon on the Mount is calling us to is to kind of to make our home in the gospel, mm-hmm. to live and act and live out the Beatitudes mm-hmm. in the context right. of the home of the gospel. It's all taking place there. And so what a beautiful reminder from Dr. Pennington and then really from the Sermon on the Mount for us to make our home in the gospel and calling for the Lord to make uh, evident here on earth what we know to be true in the kingdom Mm. and to bring that here fully. For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. On our next episode, we're going to be doing Q&A from you, the audience. And so uh, the Village Church Twitter has tweeted out or will tweet out a Slido, and it will give you an option to click on this link and ask questions that JT and Jen are not going to see ahead. Of time. What could go wrong? Exactly. We're going to say something. Did, did we sign up for this? Oh, yeah. No, I, I signed you up for this. And uh, if you can't find it on the Village Church Twitter, JT, myself, and Jen will also tweet it out. Uh, we'd love for you to ask questions because we'd love to put them on the spot and talk through those things together. We hope you're enjoying the discussion. See you next time. Grace and peace.